Well, gang, good morning. Uh, if you're a visitor or guest, if this is uh, maybe your first or uh, second time being at Christ the King, welcome. We're glad that you're here. Uh, my name is Penny, and I'm the pastor here. And, and again, if you're a guest, uh, we are glad that you're with us. We're glad that you would uh, join us this morning as we uh, gather and we sing and we sit under God's Word. And, and the portion of God's Word that we're going to be considering this morning comes from Exodus chapter 20, Exodus 20. And so if you have a Bible, uh, please turn to Exodus 20. You can also follow along in your order of service. It's printed there. Um, Exodus 20 is the chapter in which God gives to his people through the prophet Moses his Ten Commandments. Now, if you are new to the church, if you're new to the faith, or, or maybe you come from a, a different, uh, different part of the church, a different faith tradition, uh, you might be wondering, wh- why would we spend ten weeks looking at this portion of God's Word? I mean, isn't that just so Old Testament? Like, aren't, aren't we under grace now? We don't need to worry about the law Right? We're not a theocracy, which is true. We're not. Um, so, so why even consider these Ten Commandments? I mean, I mean, Jesus came and he brought with him grace, truth, but also grace. So why, why even consider that? Well, well, that's a fair question. It's a good question. But, but the truth is, is that um, Jesus did come uh, to fulfill the law, but not to get rid of the law. He said that. I didn't come to do away with the law. I came to fulfill it. And even though we no longer live, <clears throat> excuse me, in a theocracy, uh, the, the moral implications and the moral demands of God's law are still significant to us. They were not abrogated with the coming of the New Testament or the apostolic age. And so they still have great significance for us today. So that's why we're going to look at them. See, all of God's word, the Old Testament and the New Testament, all of it is Christian scripture. It's not that the New Testament is for the Christian and the Old Testament is for the Jew, but all of God's word is for us and is all significant to us as we come to it. And so that's why we're going to spend 10 weeks and we're going to look at every single one of these commandments and we're going to consider them over the next 10 weeks. And this week we begin with the first commandment and we see it in chapter 20. We're going to read the first three verses, so please follow along if you would. God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You know, uh, in our day and and age, we are not very accustomed to having limits. We don't have uh, many options that are limited to us. It, It seems as though we live in a world that has seemingly limitless options. Just the other day, I went to Kroger, uh, the Kroger at Cave Spring Corner. So I, I think we, some people call that the big Kroger. I don't know, over in Cave Spring. Anyway, maybe it's just I call it that. But I went into this Kroger, and I walked down the uh, cereal aisle. And I wasn't looking to get cereal, but, but I was just struck by the number of options there are of different kinds of cereal. And so I just stopped. And I just kind of gazed in amazement at all the different options that were afforded me on this one morning. And, and so I just started counting. I'm sure I look like kind of a crazy person, right? I'm sitting there, my lips are moving, and I'm kind of going like this, and, and I'm counting. And by my count, there were roughly around 150 different kinds of cereal at this one Kroger. I thought that was kind of interesting. 150 different kinds of cereal. There were sugary cereals, and there were healthy cereals, and there were whole food cereals, and there were other cereals that could only be defined as food by the broadest definition of the word food, 
right? There were all sorts of different cereals before me, all sorts of options. And what was interesting was it wasn't just in the cereal aisle, but I walked over to the produce and I started looking around and, and I had all these different options afforded to me, you know, options that shouldn't be afforded to me in the middle of January, like four different kinds of tomatoes and all sorts of berries. Like these things aren't supposed to grow in the middle of winter. And yet there they were for me. I had all sorts of different options. And it's not just at Kroger and cereal. It's not just in the produce section, but, but you drive down 419 and we have countless numbers of lawyers and doctor's offices and mechanics and restaurants and stores and a plethora of different options, option after option, 150 different kinds of cereal. It's fascinating, isn't it? The number of options that we have, they're at our very fingertips. And what's the most interesting to me about all these options is that they are all wanting one thing, and that is your heart. They want your allegiance, and we give it to them, right? General Mills or Post, I don't know who makes it, but they, they, they want us to be Cocoa Puff people <laughs> so that we will walk past every other box of cereal and we will just go to Cocoa Puffs or whatever cereal it is that you eat or, or whatever doctor that you like to see, you'll drive past doctor after doctor after doctor to get to the one that you want. We will drive for miles and spend extra money to go to the restaurant that we really like to go to, these things that want our hearts, that we give our allegiance over to. I mean, even think about the way that our sports teams draw on us and the way that we give ourselves to our sports teams, right? We say things like, man, I can't believe we lost the game or, or man, it was such a tough season, but we'll get them next year. And what's fascinating about that is the we. Because last I checked, like, none of y'all played uh, football for Tech this past year, and none of us are going to be manning center field for the Cardinals. But we say we, right? We won. We're now, I'm not being disparaging. You can say we. But what it shows is that we have given our allegiance to something to such a degree that we now identify ourselves with it. We are a part of it. We're Cocoa Puff people. We're Tech fans. We're Cardinal Nation. I'm Cardinal Nation. <laughs> Scott is. That's about it. Um, but the point is, is that all of these things are clamoring for our hearts, and they're clamoring that we would give our allegiance to them, so that we would ignore all the other options that we have and give ourselves to one option. And we do it that we're actually created in such a way that, that it's just natural for us to do it. And God's word in the Ten Commandments, the first commandment, is calling for our allegiance. God's not saying have no allegiances. He's saying there is one thing that you should have your ultimate allegiance, and that is me. Have no other gods before me. That's what God is declaring in his word. Have no other gods before me that I am to have central prominence in your life. Have no other gods before me. You have lots of options. Israel had lots of options. Think about where they're coming out of. Thousands of God, gods in Egypt. They could have given their heart. They could have given their allegiance to any one of those. But God is saying there is one God, the Lord Yahweh. And you are to give your allegiance to him. 
See, that's what I want us to see this morning, that this first commandment is calling us to give our allegiance to God, that in a world that is constantly competing for your heart, this commandment is demanding all of your heart be given to the Lord. It's to him and him alone. Okay, but why? Why should we give our full allegiance to the Lord? If this is what the first commandment is doing, why should we give it over to the Lord? Well, I'm glad you asked. The reason we are supposed to give it over to the Lord is because of who he is. Because of who he is. Look at verse 2. God begins, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I am the Lord your God. Now, um, as we've been going through Exodus, as we've looked at different Psalms, I've pointed this out repeatedly, but it, it bears repeating this word Lord there, you see how it's spelled in your order of service or in your Bible. It's capital L, small caps O-R-D. Whenever we see that in the Old Testament, or sometimes God is spelled that way, capital G, lower, cap, lower caps uh, O-D, when we see those words spelled that way, what that is is, a, is the translation into the English from the Hebrew divine name, okay? So every time you see Lord spelled that way, it is God's covenantal name, Yahweh, or how English speakers say Yahweh. That is what we would see if we were reading the Hebrew. And what God is doing when he says, I am the Lord your God, he's distinguishing himself from all the other gods that Israel could have given their heart to. He's basically saying, I'm not just like one of those other gods like in Egypt. I'm not just one of those other gods that you will be invited to give your heart to when you go into the nation and you will be surrounded by these polytheistic nations. He's not saying I'm just one of them. He's saying I am the Lord. That there's one true God and his name is Yahweh. That's what he's saying. I mean, this, this is important for God to be doing to Israel because of all the different options that they had surrounding them. I mean, think about when, th this was months ago, but, but try and remember back when, when Moses went to Pharaoh and said, the Lord God wants you to let Israel go so that they can serve him and worship him in the wilderness. Pharaoh didn't say, Yahweh, uh, that, that's not really God. He didn't say, there, there is no such God by that name. He basically said, I've never heard of him. Who is this guy? That's basically what he said. He wasn't challenging God's authority on the from the standpoint that there was no God named this. He had just never heard of him. And so he was just one of many gods in his economy. And Israel was going to face this again when they go into the land. All these nations surrounding them. All these different gods that they were worshiping. Sun gods and water gods, river gods. Gods over the harvest and God's over the rain. And what God is saying, what he is inviting them to see, is that as they are tempted to want to return to Egypt and give themselves to this, these other gods, or when they are tempted to give themselves to the gods of the Canaanites or the Ammonites, that they would resist that temptation. That they would know that Yahweh is the one true God. That's what our shorter catechism says. It asks how many gods are there? Are there more gods than one? And it answers, there is but only one, the living and true God. The living and true God, there is but only one. So this means that the Israel, 
that we are to give our allegiance to this God because of who he is. Not, not the gods of Egypt, not the gods of Canaan, not the gods of America, because we have them. But to this one God, Yahweh. That is who he is. He's declaring who he is, but he's also declaring what he does. We see it again in verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. What has he done? Well, we know what he did, right? He, he went and he went to a people who were in bondage, right? That's how Exodus began. Israel is in bondage. They're in slavery. They have been in slavery for hundreds of years, and God hears them, and he comes to them, and he rescues them. He delivers them out of slavery. He rescues them from their bondage. He saves them. And this deliverance that God provides for his people is so significant in the history of Israel that it becomes paradigmatic for every other experience that they will have in the future. And so they are constantly invited to remember God's deliverance, to look back on it. So for instance, I'm not used to having to drink water. Usually it's freezing and, you know, it's like, but, but it's kind of hot now. <laughs> um, I would say let's crack the windows. No, okay. But... So if we think about Deuteronomy, okay, Deuteronomy chapter 6, this is a fascinating passage. In Deuteronomy 6, Moses is instructing God's people that when Israel, when the children come and they witness the Passover and they're partaking of the Passover, they're going to ask the question, why are we keeping the Passover and why are we to abide by God's law? And what, what the parents are supposed to say is this, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. That what they are supposed to do is tell them a story. The story of redemption. See, that's what uh, the theologian Phil Riken says about that passage, that when the children of Israel asked why they had to keep God's law, their parents were supposed to tell them a story. The story of how God had rescued them how he had delivered them. This is why you are to keep the Passover. This is why you are to keep the law. Because God has rescued you. He's delivered you. And again and again, throughout Israel's history, he is constantly pointing back to the Exodus. He is constantly reminding them of this foundational event that took place in their life, that they are the rescued people. They are no longer slaves. But they have been freed from slavery. This is what God has done. And so when the people of Israel, they wonder, how are we to treat the foreigner, the immigrant, the sojourner in our midst? What did God say? Remember, you were once foreigners, and you were enslaved, and how did I treat you? When Israel is full of fear, God reminds them of how he delivered them before and how he's promised to deliver them again. When the psalmists are expressing doubt, their doubt is put away by remembering the exodus. God's great deliverance, his salvation, that this is what God has done. He's the one who has heard their cries and seen their afflictions. He is the one who made war against the gods of Egypt. Remember, that's what the plagues were. Remember the gods of Egypt, they had authority over places like the sun or the river. And what did God do? He turned the sky black. The power of the sun god was nothing in comparison to the power of Yahweh. And he took the river and he turned it into blood. And the river god had no authority over that place. 
God was making war against Egypt's gods. And he was saying that the, uh, the power and authority that is attributed to them, it is nothing in comparison to the power and authority of Yahweh because he is the one true God. Because of what he does, that is why we are to give our allegiance to him. He is the one who time and again has shown that he is the powerful one, the true and only God. He does what no one else could have done. He won them their freedom and their salvation. And that is what he has done for us. You see, friends, we're to look back as well. But we don't have to look as far back as the Exodus. We don't have to go as far back as as the book of Exodus. We go as far back as the cross. And in the cross, what we see is God doing what no one else could have done. Because in the cross, we see God, the one who has taken on flesh and has kept the entirety of the law perfectly. The one who has gone to his death to take judgment upon himself rather than on us and has risen again to defeat death. We see in the cross redemption and salvation. This is what Christ has done for us. He has freed us, not from a foreign power, but from our sin. That is why he's deserving of our allegiance. Because of who he is and because of what he has done. He's the only God who saves. Okay, that's the why. That's why we're to give him our allegiance. But how? In what areas? How do we go about giving our allegiance to God? Well, I want you to notice something. Maybe some of y'all already did. We haven't even actually gotten to the first commandment yet. Did you notice that? We've been camped out on the preface to the Ten Commandments. That's what verse 2 is. And there's good reason for that because the preface for the Ten Commandments is a foundational principle for understanding the rationale or the motivation for why we are to obey them. You see, the, the um, Christian theologians uh, throughout history have pointed out that there is this um, hermeneutical paradigm that shows up consistently throughout Scripture, and it's indicatives and imperatives. Okay, so Sinclair Ferguson, a Scottish theologian, talks about this a lot in the New Testament, but it shows up in the Old as well. And the principle is this, that we often see indicatives, so this is just what is true, right? What is true of you, was true of God, was true of the world. But then we see imperatives, so this is what we are to do. So this is like, have no other gods before me. Uh, do not murder um, put, on the Holy, put on the Spirit, right? Seek to do good deeds. Put off the old and put on the new. These sorts of imperative statements, what we are to do. But what we see is that these indicatives are the foundation or the motivation for the imperatives, and it's not reversed. So God doesn't say, do not murder, then I will love you. God doesn't say, Put off the old and put on the new, and then I will regenerate you. God says, I have saved you. Now keep my commandments. That's actually what he says, isn't it? He's reminding them of what he's already done. I have already saved you. I have already rescued you. Now have no other gods before me. Now thou shalt not murder. Now thou shalt not take the Lord's name in vain. He is leading with the indicative and then moving towards the imperative. God has graciously saved his people, and the way that we respond is through obedience. So in 1 Peter chapter 2, we're told that we are to live as people who are free, 
not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. You see, because God has delivered us, we're now free to obey him. How? In what places are we to obey him? When we give our allegiance to God, the how is by giving glory to God in every aspect of our life. Not just on Sunday morning. Not just in those 20 minutes when we're reading our Bible. Not just when we're in prayer. Not just when we're doing family devotions. Not just when we're sharing the gospel. But in every aspect of our life, we are to give glory to God. See, now when we think about giving glory to God, we we probably actually run to this place right here. Right? This is where we give God glory. In corporate worship, as we gather together, as we sing to him together, as we sit under his word, as we dine at his table, this is where we give God glory. And that is absolutely true. We should not minimize that. That corporate worship is not something that we should ignore or put aside, but it is the place where God's people come to glorify God. But the Bible speaks of life in such a way that reflects a fuller expression of worship, one that spills out of this place into every sphere of life. So, for instance, in Colossians, Chapter 3, the Apostle Paul says, Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Or again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he goes on to say, Whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Do all to the glory of God. Have no other gods before me means that, that there would be no gods that we are clinging to in our minds or our hearts. That there would be, that in everything, positively speaking, that we would give our minds and our words and our actions. That whatever we do, wherever we go, be it the place of worship or our homes or our places of work or our schools, wherever we go, whatever we do, that we would all do it as worshipers of the true God. That is how we give our allegiance to him. By bringing every part of us in complete submission to him. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, I should clarify what that phrase before me means because it could sound like before me is saying, God's kind of saying, like, you can have all these other gods, but as long as I'm number one, we're okay. Like, like I'm the gold medal God. You can have silver or bronze or participation ribbon gods, but, but as long as I'm number one, that's all that matters. Or, or as long as I have 51% of your heart, the, 40, the rest of the 49%, you can do whatever you want. Give it to whomever you please. That's what before me could sound like. I think you can tell by my tone that's not what we're supposed to see. <laughs> because that's not what God's talking about. No, you see, you shall have no other gods before me has two different aspects to it. The first is that in the Hebrew, that phrase literally means you shall have no other gods before my face. So that's fascinating. Before my face, that's what the the Hebrew word is indicating. And it's idiomatic for meaning God's presence. So it's an idiom indicating God's presence. And so what God is saying is that you shall have no other God in my presence. But where is God's presence? Well, God's not just present here. He's present everywhere. Right? I mean, the Old Testament says the entire earth is full of his creation. And the psalmist declares, where shall I go from your spirit? And where shall I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn or dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, behold, your hand will guide me. We can't escape his presence. 
Everywhere we go is his presence. And so what God is saying when he says, you shall have no other gods before my face, is that you shall not bring any other God, any other thing. You shall not give your allegiance to anything, regardless of where you are, regardless of where you might be. Yahweh is the only one that is to have preeminent allegiance in our hearts. That's the first aspect of it. The second is, is that when we bring other gods into God's presence, we are doing so in opposition to God. You see, that's the other part of that, before my face. We would bring another God, if we are bringing another God into his presence, we are doing so challenging the authority that God has. See, that word is often used in those kinds of contexts throughout Scripture. That we cannot serve two gods. You will either love the one or hate the other. And hate the other, excuse me. And Jesus talks about this. In the Gospels, Jesus says when he talks about money, he says, you can, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Basically, what Jesus is doing there is applying the first commandment. He's saying, if you make God your money, your God, then Yahweh is not. But it's true of anything. If sex is your God, Yahweh is not. If pleasure is your God, then Yahweh is not. If possessions are your God, then Yahweh is not. You see, the first commandment is telling us that in all things, God must have our ultimate allegiance. You see, it's indicating that our lives are lived rightly when they are lived wholly unto him. The secular writer uh, Julian Barnes, uh, he was reflecting upon uh, religion in general. And at the time when he wrote what I'm about to read, he, he wasn't a Christian. I don't know if he is now. But he, he once said, there seems little point in a religion, which is merely a weekly social event, as opposed to one which tells you exactly how to live, which colors and stains everything. It's very insightful. For someone who's not a Christian, as, as far as I know, is, is anti-theistic, that's very insightful. And he's right. He's right. You see, if God is God, and if Christ has freed you from your sins, then we owe him our entire allegiance. Every sphere of life, every part of us is to be stained by his word. Or the way that our larger catechism puts it, it asks, what are the duties required in the first commandment? And there's a long answer. It's the larger catechism after all. There's a large answer. I'm going to read a portion of it to us. To worship and glorify God accordingly. By thinking, mediating, remembering, highly esteeming, honoring, adoring, choosing, loving, desiring, fearing of him, believing him, trusting, hoping, delighting, rejoicing in him, being zealous in him, calling upon him, giving all praise and thanks, and yielding all obedience and submission to him with the whole man. What part of your life is not counted in that? <laughs> and that was only part of the answer. <laughs> our entire life is to be lived in complete submission to our God. That wherever we go, that whatever we say, whatever we think, whatever we do, it is to be lived in 100% wholehearted allegiance to our God. That giving our allegiance to him means that it colors every part of us. 
So how do we know if we're giving our allegiance to him? Or how do we know if we're giving our allegiance to something else instead of him? Well, that requires us to examine our lives. It requires us to ask some pointed questions and some honest questions. Like, what's controlling you? What are your deepest emotions? The, the pastor, Tim Keller, from, from New York City, he's, he asked these questions. What makes us uncontrollably angry, anxious, or despondent? What racks us with a guilt we can't shake? And he goes on and says, these idols, which is basically anything that we give our allegiance to in place of God, these idols control us since we feel we must have them or life is meaningless. Now, if you're a Christian here this morning, you know better than to say anything. If I, have, if I am missing anything, then my life has no meaning, right? You, you know better than to say that. But even though we don't say it with our lips, I, I wonder what our actions would say. I wonder if we honestly reflected upon what emotions are controlling us, what desires we have. If we reflected upon the words that we said, I wonder if they would portray, if they would reveal to us that we are actually giving our allegiance to something other than God. I wonder what would happen if we asked those who know us best, what do my actions say about where my allegiance lies? I wonder what they would say. Your spouse, your friend, your parent. I got to tell you, when I started thinking about this, I almost didn't write this because uh, I'll be honest, I'm a little nervous to ask Kat that. <laughs> because who knows what she might say? Because she knows me better than anyone. She's seen me at my best, and she has certainly seen me at my worst. I'm a little nervous about what she might say, because she might say, my image. Maybe that's what controls me. Or my desire for control. Or my wanting of order. Or she might say, my job. Or wanting to be right. Or security. I wonder what those closest to you would say. It's a scary thought, isn't it? But maybe the very fact that it scares me to ask that question means I need to. Maybe it means I need this afternoon to go and ask Kat. I say with my mouth that Jesus is my king, but what really rules me? Maybe the fact that I'm nervous to ask means I need to. Not so that we would wallow in our despair, not so that we would sit and look upon our lives and go, woe is me, but so that we would repent of it. That we would repent of it and we would turn our allegiance away from those things. Security, control, money, the future, the, the past, whatever it might be that we would turn away from those, we would repent of it, and we would make Christ our king. That we would let him rule in every sphere of our life, in every place. You see, friends, living with full allegiance given over to God is what he intended for us. We weren't meant to give ourselves to created things. We were created to give glory and worship to God above all others. 
The famous mathematician Blaise Pascal, in his Pensees, he understood this and he wrote about it. He said that there was once in man a true happiness, of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace. What he is referencing is, is that day before the fall, those days or weeks or however long before the fall, before sin entered into God's good creation, there was a time when man experienced true happiness of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace. He goes on, this he tries, man tries in vain to fill with everything around him, seeking in things that are not there, the help he cannot find in those that are, though none can help, since this infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite and immutable object, in other words, by God himself. You see, what Pascal recognized and what we know is that our hearts will always be searching and always be longing and always be seeking to fill that abyss that is in our souls until God is preeminent that the only thing that can fill that hole, that abyss, is the infinite and immutable, God himself. And the good news is this, that he has. Friends, look no further. Put aside all those other allegiances. Look no further. God has provided that which our hearts are longing for. He has provided himself. And because he has done that, we belong to him. And so we give our allegiance to him today and tomorrow and all our days, in all our ways and in all the places he calls us into. We come under his authority, giving allegiance to him. Amen. Our God and our King, we ask that you would help us to live this out that you would help us to turn away from those things that, that we cling to, that we hold on to, that we think will give life. Open our eyes that we would see them clearly for what they are, that they are false gods, that they are counterfeits, that they are not true, that they are not giving that which we long for. But you do. So I pray that you would soften our hearts to your truth that you would open our minds to the realities of the gospel, that you would open our eyes, that we would see you clearly, and we would live in complete allegiance to you. Our God and our King, in whose name we pray, and God's people said, Amen.